Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and we have uh, a real treat for you today. I'm going to be in conversation with fellow textbook writer uh, Larry Orton Leaf, um, uh, someone who I've collaborated with in the past writing uh, about modern China and today Larry and myself are going to be discussing the nature of the origins, uh, the course and the consequences of the Sino-Soviet split. Uh, without further ado, now let's go over to uh, hear from Larry himself. Okay, so Larry, welcome to the Explaining History podcast. Um, and today we're going to talk about the Sino-Soviet split, the this kind of huge um, rupture in international relations from the uh, the fifties through to the nineteen seventies. Um, firstly. Let's look at origins. So when we're talking about this kind of schism within the communist world, what seems to be the kind of the, the, the causation of that? What, why, why do we get this, this kind of strange state of affairs where the two communist superpowers are uh, moved from kind of um, uh, relative cooperation to outright hostility? Yeah, well, that, that, that's, that's the whole thing, isn't it, Nick? That <clears throat> most students are aware of the Cold War. Very few are aware of the, the kind of forgotten dimension of China involving itself. And I think, you know, with the exception of the Cuban Missile Crisis, in 1969 is the closest the world gets to World War Three. touch wood. And... How did we get from, like you say, the two leading communist countries who should logically be uh, allies end up as antagonists? And I think the background actually goes be, um, before communism. And, and if you look at China in the 19th century, they're, they're exploited by foreign powers. 
Mm-hmm. And I think they are very, very suspicious of any foreign nation's intentions. So, yeah. so I, I would really look at putting the roots of this disagreement in the 19th century. And I, I think that's an element that the Soviets initially don't quite appreciate. Yeah. Well, I, I suppose if you're looking at it from um, a kind of a Stalinist perspective, mm. your, your view of, of, of what history is, how history functions and what societies do are informed by Marxist-Leninism. And Marxist-Leninism says that social classes respond, you know, respond in this sort of way. They will overthrow their oppressing class and then create some sort of international solidarity. And therefore, countries with, um, that have had socialist revolutions will therefore cooperate. And, well, nice idea in principle. But, as you say, if you take out the, the kind of the unequal treaties of the 19th century, if you ignore that... If you, know, if you ignore the fact that um, Japan, uh, China had had this uh, from the kind of 1860s through to the 1930s, this really kind of explosion of nationalist sentiment, which is the result of kind of uh, colonisation, uh, uh, which is something we never really kind of fully accept, the extent to which China was colonised by European countries. Then you'll, you'll, you'll be selling yourself a misleading picture. Um, and... I suppose the part part of it uh, for me, there's a kind of a great deal of Soviet chauvinism towards China, the idea that um, China um, should be listening to the Soviet Union because China should be the the pupil and the Soviet Union should be the teacher, um, and I think with Mao's vanity particularly, that was something that was never going to be accepted. Yeah, vanity and paranoia. Yeah. A characteristic shared by most dictators. Yes, yes. So, um, in in nineteen forty nine, the the relationship between Stalin and Mao seems to get off to sort of quite quite auspicious uh, an auspicious beginning, doesn't it? Um, the, the two of them, Mao um, goes to uh, to visit Stalin uh, and uh, arranges a an economic deal. Probably, I think it's only China's only economic deal. Uh, yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I, I would say that Stalin would have thought that the relationship was off to an auspicious start, but but Mao's paranoia because if we remember, obviously, before the CCP came to power, there'd been a civil war raging in China for twenty, thirty years, yes. in which Stalin had surprisingly been more on the side of the nationalists than the communists, because from his worldview, it was more important for China to be united so that China could then serve Soviet interests of being a, a solid bulwark against Japan, who That's was true. Soviet Union's great, great fear at that time. Yeah. So I think straight away, Mao is like, hold on, you're not actually doing this for us. You're not doing this for world communism. You are actually aping the the behaviours of the old school imperialists. You were looking out for your self interest. Yeah. And um, then obviously you get into the as you implied the vanity of personalities and um, this remarkable scene where Mao gets invited to I think it's Stalin's seventieth birthday party, which you know one that I'm sure we would have all liked an invite to, <laughs> and, and he's. He kind of expects himself to be the almost your keynote speaker, doesn't he? Yes. Uh, the star guest, and he's 
he's very much just another delegate and he doesn't it? He's left kind of in a villa on his own for days, kind of ruminating and getting more and more paranoid. Yes. And then, and then Stalin graces him with his presence and presents an agreement or a, a proposed financial arrangement that actually catches Mao by surprise. He, he, he um, is expecting a lot more than what he receives, isn't he, in that, that agreement? Yeah. It, um, it, it it sort of rather resembles kind of a sort of a Soviet payday loan. You know, the <laughs> it, there's a kind of a, a a nice cash injection to begin with, but what Stalin wants is raw materials cheaply for a long, long time, um, and there's a kind of a a flow of Soviet specialists from um, the Soviet Union to China. I always get the sense with that that these sort of technical specialists were there was a, there was probably no nobody in the Soviet Union that knew anything more about economics or engineering than already existed in China anyway. Um, but they came with a kind of a, a a model of a command economy for for Mao to kind of uh, appropriate. Um, of course, you see. Mao had deviated from Marxist-Leninism uh, since the 1930s, and his, his um, various kind of writings whilst fighting a, a guerrilla war against the, the nationalists made the point that the peasants in China and anywhere else in the world would be the key revolutionary class that would overthrow capitalism. Uh, and this was going to be uh, something that... Stalin, and we talk about Stalin's vanity, Stalin's vanity as a kind of, I suppose, writer and thinker and intellectual, which is how he liked to see himself, and the, the heir of, uh, of Leninist thought, there was no way he was going to tolerate any kind of deviation from that sort of um, uh, strand of, of Marxist-Leninism. I'd also... Uh probably suggest there might be a kind of racial superiority element to this as well, that the the Europeans are not going to be told by the Orientals, who, as you implied earlier, they'd previously colonised, that actually this is the way you run your shop. And since so, so you have that perspective, and then how, how, do, how do you look, how do you analyse Mao? I suppose, yeah, vanity is a word we keep on coming back to, but I'd also... Think arrogance and naivety. Yeah. The whole premise of of Marxism is that the revolution would be based in the industrial working class, the proletariat. Yeah. So Mao looks at China, says, "Well, less than one percent of our country is uh, industrial. So what do we do?" I, I, I think the vast majority of ideologists would have thought. You leave it a generation or two, you develop the industry, and Mao just said, no, no, we're not going to wait. We have a lot of peasants. You know, over 95% of our country is peasant. They are the poorest. They have the most to benefit. All, all of those assumptions are correct. Yeah. So he says, right, we're going to base it in the peasants. Yeah. And, and there are two, you know, Stalin, not, not a man known for his uh, sense of humour, refers to Mao as a caveman Marxist, like this incredibly old-fashioned um, belief, because obviously Russia had gone through an agricultural-based approach of collectivization, which had not gone so successfully. No. And then he re re doesn't refer to him as well as a margarine Marxist. So yeah. that's, it's like you're a fake, and uh, 
like I say, Stalin, not known for humour, but they, they, those nicknames, yeah, they're quite good, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there you have this ideological rift. And I think students assume, I say students, I assumed before I, I knew about this topic, Russia communist, China communist, but they, they might, must work together. They must have very similar beliefs. Yeah. And here at the beginning of the relationship, we see that it is built on a full false premise yeah. there are huge differences the the way to think about it i think is a bit of a thought experiment is if you took two leading capitalist nations oh i don't know say the the the, the usa and oh, at the moment the, the eu and you one uh, was to argue something so fundamentally different about the workings of capitalism um that you know capitalism happens as a result of X and the other said, "Well, no, no. Capitalism happens as a result of Y." Um, trying to have a dialogue between those two countries would be it would present perhaps not the same difficulties, but but fundamental difficulties. I mean, you sort of have aspects of that, but knowing nothing near as pronounced as the the way in which uh, the Soviet Union and Maoist China uh, interpreted. Um, the, the nature of, of, of Marxism because yes. you know Marxism is a kind of it goes slightly beyond a, a, a political ideology it is a kind of a, th- a theory of history it's yes, a, evolution yeah, yeah the evolution of people yeah why do things happen as they happen is essentially and, and how does how is the next big change in the world going to happen mm. yeah. Um, so yeah. so you can so um, for countries that aren't you know, for countries that aren't sort of haven't had Marxist revolutions and are observing this from the outside, these look like obscurantist debates. You know, the the kind of the the sort of like uh, the, the 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 debates about transubstantiation during the Reformation or something like that. But the, they are within; they're enormously, enormously important. And as far as Stalin saw it, I believe that. His way of looking at things was: this comes down to a question as who will lead the communist world, yeah. and um, and then it begins to become more acute, obviously, when Stalin dies, which is the the when I think really the the what we've talked about so far are the kind of like the fissures, the the kind of the cracks, and when Stalin dies, uh, those those break out. Um, so <clears throat> yeah. when Khrushchev. Um, becomes general secretary. What happens then? So, so what happens? First of all, I think, although there are differences between Stalin and Mao, and that boils over into resentment, no doubt, Mao is a huge admirer of Stalin. He admires all that he's achieved. He admires Stalin's leadership during World War Two. He admires Stalin's style of leadership, this utter brutality in the name of the cause. I, I, I think Mao's very uh, appreciative of this. And then he is replaced by, by Khrushchev. Now, Khrushchev is not an intellectual. You know, there's, isn't there that story of Stalin ta- tapping his pipe on Khrushchev's head and saying it's hollow, you know, that hmm. Khrushchev's no great, great thinker. And I think Mao sees Khrushchev as an upstart. He, he sees him as intellectually inferior, but the head of this huge economic juggernaut that the Soviet Union was coming. So 
So Khrushchev wants to keep Mao on side. He wants unity. So he there, there's this very brief period from 53 to 56 where there's a surge in Soviet support, uh, industrial and military. Mm-hmm. And then... 1956, with the secret speech, de-Stalinization, then this house of cards really falls down. Sure. Because Khrushchev comes along and he says, well, Stalin was despotic, he was brutal. And you, you could almost imagine Mao listening and saying, yeah, that's right, but that's not actually a bad thing. And Khrushchev's actually saying, this is awful, this is what we need to move away from. Yeah. All, all those accusations levelled at Stalin could be levelled at Mao. Mm-hmm. And as we said, Mao's incredibly paranoid. So he, what is he going to fear? He's going to fear, and it's a constant through Mao's life, is that Mao Zedong thought, i.e. Maoism, will not survive Mao. Yeah. So what will Mao's legacy be? So he sees Khrushchev as undermining Mao, and then it just gets it, it gets very petty, really. It's kind of the things almost you'd get um, two students falling out over. It's kind of, um, oh, you know, it's not so much what you said, it's that you didn't tell me before that you were going to say it, because, hey, I thought we were supposed to be best friends and respect each other, and now you're acting unilaterally, and... Yeah. Christoph must be thinking, who on earth is this guy? You know, we've, for three years we've been handing over assistance, hand over foot, uh, and um, there is no gratitude from Mao, is there? He he thinks this is what we're owed from the 19th century. You owe us. Yeah. Um, and then in, in lots of Mao's writings, um, where Mao twigged that Stalin's initial deal with him was... Uh, Quite, uh, quite one-sided in Russia's favour. Exploitative, yeah. He said, "Ah, look, just like, just like how things were, you know, in uh, in the in the eighteen sixties." Absolutely. Um, and um, Mao has a a kind of a, an, an interesting view, not shared with um, the Soviet Union, on the kind of succession of world leadership. Um, he, his his view was, well, I. Surely, now that Stalin has died, I am the heir apparent to the uh, um, the leadership of, of world yes, communism. Yes. Uh, the idea that it goes down the line to one of Mao, one of Stalin's subordinates. Well, that, that's patently ridiculous. Um, you know, did did Khrushchev bring you know uh, half a billion people into uh, under the communist flag? I don't think so. Yeah, well, you, you've got that famous image. Um... And I don't know if your leaders know Nick, but you, you, you and I collaborated on um, a textbook project. And in the research for that, and it was actually the picture I wanted to be on the front cover, was the one of Marx and Engels and Lenin and Stalin showing that progression. Yeah. What I wasn't aware of until I started researching this book was that there was a Chinese variant of that picture, oh, which yeah. has Mao <laughs> on the end. So I posed this this, um, question in the textbook of how would a Soviet have reacted to this image with Mao kind of on the end? And I think they would have thought it was little less than vandalism. Yeah, or Uh, preposterous. Yeah, absolutely. Who is this backwards caveman peasant of a country that is big, but it's Mickey Mouse country? And here you're saying that you're world leader. You know, you've been communist China for seven years. Yeah. And, you know, that is it. And it, 
And then how does it spiral? If Mao and Stalin didn't get on, at least Mao had respect for Stalin's leadership. Mao and Khrushchev cannot stand each other. No. And, you know, um, so many instances of them not getting on and really being quite petulant to each other that it only worsens the situation. Khrushchev, for instance, says of the Great Leap Forward, that it's totally unworkable. You know, we, we tried it 20 years ago. It didn't work. Why do you think uh, it's going to work? And, and ironically, a lot of Mao's defence for the Great Leap Forward was the working of um, a Soviet scientist, Trofim Lysenko, yes. who, who um, you know, the ideas are later proven to be fraudulent. But there's something kind of perverse that Mao supports his ideas with the ideas of a Soviet thinker. It's kind of like... Almost him saying, I'm, I'm trying to be a good boy. I'm trying to do it the Soviet way. But um, almost presenting Khrushchev as turning un-Soviet. Yes. Um, so when you get to the, um, the, the later 1950s and you have um, disasters like the Great Leap Forward and the, uh, the, the, the Great Famine. Yes. Uh, where, and you know, statistical ranges and uh, really, really differ... Um, where I, I think it was um, Frank Dakota said that it could be anything between 40 and 80 million who died. Um, uh, there is a, there's actually, I think, a, a connection between the Sino-Soviet split and the, uh, the disaster of the, of the Great Leap Forward, oh. in that Mao now had to show the, the, this non-entity Khrushchev how you do things um, and how you leapfrog ahead of capitalist countries uh, in a generation and the the method he employs is a kind of a you know a maoist um a, 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 a maoist kind of approach by um saying look we, we mobilize the entire population you want to see what a, pez- a revolutionary peasantry can do this is it you um you get the the, the entire uh, the entire peasant population to do, you know, rather daft things like down tools in the field and go and build dams where we work them to death. Um, and, of course, the, re- the result is um, a, a disaster on kind of almost historically unforeseen uh, levels. Yeah. Um, and, again, part of it comes from... Um, j- just as the, the, the kind of the Soviet famines and collectivization were partly born of Stalin's world view of, of looking at the threats beyond Soviet borders and then thinking, what do we have to do in the Soviet Union to build the country up? Wow. I believe Mao was in exactly the same position uh, of um, thinking, how, the, how do we seize control of of the kind of the, the workings of global communism because you know if from Mao's perspective had the great leap forward worked then there would be um there would be no question of of his his leadership yeah and, and you know I, I i don't think it's wholly relevant to this debate but the there's also a sino-soviet split over the leadership of um african nations which had just been freed from their colonial yoke from British or, or French rule um, adopted communism and there's this real kind of like well it's almost another scramble for Africa really yeah. uh, of the uh, Sinophide and the Marxist-Leninist versions trying to appeal um, 
Yeah, that you do have the economic, and it all happens as well as you're implying within this kind of global scene. Now, I think the biggest reason for the split is Khrushchev's view of what what is called peaceful coexistence. Sure. Now, Khrushchev had lost a son during World War Two. The, the the impact of war had visited him personally. Um, yes, Mao also lost um, his son, Mao Wanying, in Korea in 1950, so there is a parallel there. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. But whereas Mao sees the death of his son, or whether he sees this or whether this is just what he, he says he sees, he sees that as himself making a sacrifice for China, which is, you know, it's ludicrous, frankly. But the, the experience of losing a son had a very different effect on Khrushchev. Now, Khrushchev's full of bluster. He, he, he barks. I'm not sure he bites. Mm. But he is aware that war nuclear war is upon us. It's something very different. So at an international conference in, I believe, 1957, where I think Deng was speaking on behalf of the CCP, and pretty much says, we will, if America drops a bomb on us, good, because we've got the population to absorb that. They don't, and then we're going to attack them. And uh, it's an Italian communist leader says, well, Okay, I hear what you're saying. I don't agree. I hear what you're saying. What if America or a capitalist country dropped a bomb on Italy? It would wipe out our entire nation, our entire civilization. And the um, CCP delegate turns around and says, well, what's the big deal about Italy? Because it's what you said right at the beginning, that communism is about social classes, not about national identity. Yeah. But that kind of flippancy sets the Soviets off. They're like, we, we've got a maverick here, a ticking time bomb, and we can't support him to the extent that he wants us to support him, because what will he do with what we're going to give him? Yeah. Mao wants nukes, he wants submarines capable of launching them, and Khrushchev says, no, no way, we, because you would do something that would provoke 
World War Three. Yeah. So, so you've got that international element, that economic element. And did not Mao look at um, the the kind of the early moves towards détente? Um, didn't Mao look at that as, as essentially weakness? Yes, cowardice and betrayal. Yeah, he said basically. Um, you know, his view of say the Korean War was well, we won it. Um, yeah, we, yeah. we 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 beat the, the capitalists, which I mean, you know. That's one way of looking at the Korean War. I'm not sure I in, in, entirely subscribe to that. No. But that's what he and large numbers of people in China did believe. And he, he, he viewed um, the uh, kind of uh, easing of tensions with the capitalist world yeah, as being uh, sort of uh, a, a sign of, of, of weakness. And again, we come back to this theme of kind of the personal personal uh, identities and politics uh, and Mao seeing himself as the tough guy but also on an ideological level his his view was that communism had to be belligerent um, I'm just reading um, the, uh, the, the the first volume in Stephen Kotkin's um, a trilogy on Stalin at the moment and he makes the point that by about 1923-24, um, the big conversation in the, the Soviet Communist Party was that uh, revolution wasn't going to spread. In order to build socialism in one country, you need to have reasonable relations in terms of trade and um, trans technology transfers with the capitalist world, and that is just the nature of that. Uh, you won't be able to undermine them or overthrow them, not in a generation. And, and this was... Stalin saying this. Um, the um, so by the time you get to Khrushchev, the idea that the Soviet Union is going to spread world revolution that that's kind of for the birds, really. And I don't think there was there were many people in the Soviet Union that believed that for a moment. But I do think that Mao's view of the Soviet Union was you're you're the kind of the tired old man. You've yeah. um, you've had your day and and it didn't work out. We're the young bloods now. I think that's exactly it. Because for the Russians at this stage, world communism is some kind of whimsical end goal. It, it's the, uh, the the system of capitalism will exploit the poor to the extent that they will revolt and overthrow capitalism in their own country. Whereas Mao's view is drop a bomb on them and that will help get the process going quicker. Yeah. So you can understand why the Russians think what they think about the Chinese, but also to an extent you can see... As you've said, the Chinese just think the Russians are, you know, they've sold out. Yeah. The, the, this whole idea of detente is betrayal of the working classes. Yeah. yeah. And, and so then we get to um, the, the kind of the, the, the height of tensions that coincide with the, the cultural revolution. Yeah. Do you think that there is a, I mean, this is a bit, a bit of a straw man question, really. The, the answer is obviously yes. But what is the relationship between the Sino-Soviet split and the, the Cultural Revolution, do you think? Because I, I, I don't know, Nick. I, um, when I, when I um, applied to become a teacher, I, li I literally had the interview and they said, you've got the job and you're going to teach four groups of Lower Sixth China. I was like, oh, fantastic. And I got out the door, shut the doors. I was like, oh, my God, I don't know anything about China. So I had to learn it. And the one part of the course that was really, really tough to get 
was the Cultural Revolution. Because at, at first reading, it makes no sense. Yeah. And then at second and third reading, it makes no sense. Yeah. And eventually, the bits of the puzzle fall into place. That basically, a country will entirely purge itself for the country's benefit. Yeah. I, I've always, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very much with you there. And I'm, you know, I, I always try to t take the, what you, they call the, the beginner's mind to looking mm. at history. And the, China, the, the Cultural Revolution for always, for me, will be like, almost like the quantum physics of the 20th century. I keep looking at it thinking, I just find this so unfathomably kind of multidimensional and complex. And when I feel I've understood it, I, I make the mistake of reading another book on it and then boom. Um, but yes, the, it was a, a country, as you say, trying to purge itself um, and trying to go from... Uh, political revolution, which had happened, social revolution, which had happened, and this this kind of deeper, um, almost existential revolution, yes. um, yeah. Yeah. which is 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 the, the the curious bit, and happens to be terrifically violent. Uh, what do you think is the? Because um, obviously the Sino-Soviet split reaches its height in sort of sixty-seven to sixty-nine, where yes. it, you're you're facing kind of open war. Yes. Do you think Mao was motivated by the Sino-Soviet split to bring about the Cultural Revolution? Um, well, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough question, isn't it? Yeah. I, I would suggest no, because I find Mao so kind of arrogant, I would have thought his thinking would have been far more in, internal than that. But, but the parallels are huge. So, so the two great targets of the Cultural Revolution are bureaucracy and revisionism. Mm-hmm. And the Soviet Union is an incredibly bureaucratic communist state. It is not dynamic. It is not, you know, whenever you hear someone say, oh, my God, they're communist, you're Marxist, and you have this vision of huge social upheaval. The Russians, for them, they've done that. Their revolution was 1917, and now they are a bureaucratic nation. Um, so, so that sets them at odds. The idea of... Um, Attacking revisionism, that is the very cornerstone of Khrushchev's policy. Yeah. Dates on with the US. So both of those principles are at odds. It, does Mao decide to launch? I think Mao decides to, to launch the Cultural Revolution as a kind of whitewash of the total economic disaster that was the Great Leap Forward. Yeah. And he's trying to retain his own uh, ideological dominance in the Soviet Union. But there is one very, very, very interesting element involving the Soviet Union, mm. which is in 1968, the Soviet Union under their new leader, um, Leonid Brezhnev, him of the eyebrows, is that they are going to actively involve themselves in any communist nation where communism is under threat. Mm. Now... For Brezhnev, I'm 100% sure this means uh, to avoid uprisings like Hungary in 1956. And looking right at the here and now, it's the Prague uprisings of 68. Mm -hmm. However, Mr. Paranoid Mao believes, hold on, what if they look at our cultural revolution that is attacking elements that are fundamental to Soviet Marxist-Leninism? Are they going to interpret us uh, on the Cultural Revolution as an instance of anti-communism happening in a socialist state. Are they going to invade, basically? Mm -hmm. um, 
no. Yeah. Because I credit the Soviets with a little bit more worldliness than that. However, for Mao, you know, Mao's building underground nuclear defences, which I, I believe are never completed. But I believe a whole load of Beijing, but it still exists, this underground network. Yeah. Mao, Mao, despite this huge bravado, is convinced that not only will the Soviets invade, he is convinced that the Soviets would defeat China. And he's, he's quite right. It gets to the extent that Mao, this is, you know, look at this with your 2020 eyes. Mao saw the Soviet Union, a communist country, as a greater threat to China, a communist nation's existence, than America, yes. the leader of world capitalism. I think that's a remarkable, remarkable conclusion to reach. We, which neatly brings us on to the, uh, the, the Nixon visit in 1972. And this has a huge bearing on the, the Sino-Soviet split. Um, obviously, this was the the great diplomatic triumph uh, of Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, and probably one of the kind of the the, the greatest diplomatic coups of the twentieth century. Um, but obviously, the Americans were fully aware of the Sino-Soviet tensions and saw this as a terrific opportunity, didn't they? Absolutely, and a, a huge opportunity, and all they had to do was to sell Taiwan down the river, mm-hmm. which they do very happily because China and, uh, sorry, Taiwan and America had an agreement in 1954, which pretty much says, protect us from China. The, um, during that Nixon period, I think 71, the, uh, they abrogated the, that, that a, a, a arrangement. Yeah. Taiwan had just left. And then you have this growing alliance. I think Ronald Reagan's the man who goes over to reassure Taiwan that we still got your back, but we can't have this treaty because it stops our, our policy imperative here. Yeah. So, you, you know, from that Nixon visit, though, it, it is a turning point in, in modern Chinese history. as a, a famous image, and there's Nixon flanked by Zhou Enlai, on what, this great moderate survivor of the CCP. And on the other side, um, Zhang King, uh, um, Mao's wife, the leading militant in the party. And you wonder what the conversation there was. But it's indicative that 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 actually leaves Nixon out of the equation, one of the more right-wing and anti-communist American Hmm. uh, leaders of the post-World War II period, well, up until now. And and, and you kind of see, see the... A picture that in the 1960s wouldn't have made sense. Yeah. By the early 1970s, this is happening. Yeah. And what you, what I see at that point is you start. I mean, there was this whole um, unwritten Roosevelt doctrine, wasn't there? That you would have a, a, a multipolar world. Um, this would be the, the the ideal world to have after the Second World War um, of uh, basically. The, the British Empire, America, China and the Soviet Union were all with spheres of influence. Uh, and then you get the worst of all worlds, you know, Britain's bankrupt at the end of the war, loses its empire, China's in the civil war. So then you have, for, from 1945 onwards, a, a bipolar world, which is much more dangerous. And then you wind up in the 1970s, this, the, 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 the Nixon visit is the emergence of a kind of like a, a multipolar world, which for a canny politician like Nixon is presents lots of opportunities. And you you're almost looking at kind of the the, the sort of the, the reinvention of 
European great power politics that you yes. saw with you know Austria, Germany, and, and Russia, and, and, and that kind of thing. And so, obviously, the you know essentially the the Politburo in Moscow panic. They uh, invite Nixon to um, Russia very very quickly after that, and and Nixon. You know the the kind of the the golden egg that Nixon gets really is the the help of the Soviets and the Chinese to extricate America from Vietnam um, and to to kind of uh, put pressure on the North Vietnamese and to end arms sales and, and all all that kind of useful stuff. So the the Sino-Soviet split, I suppose, um, doesn't so much end as, as to some degree kind of fizzle out um, you, you, one might argue is it, it, it ends with the, the in, in the early 1990s finally with the end of communism yeah because even if we look at the Nixon visit it's very much in the stage of Maoist China where two pertinent questions were after Mao who and more importantly after Mao what yeah. and as we can see now looking backwards that Mao Zedong thought to a large extent, does die with Mao. The, the, the communist China under Deng, which still survives today, is it, based on a broadly capitalist economy yeah. with a very authoritarian social rule, which ironically is the great Maoist legacy. The, you know, look at Tiananmen Square and currently uh, you know, the ongoing situations for the Muslims in Xinjiang uh, uh, and um, the Buddhists in Tibet. So an ongoing legacy of Mao is actually that control. Yeah. And that's very Maoist, and I think you could date that straight back to Stalin, because mm-hmm. that, 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 that's it. Economically, though, I think with Deng wanting to follow a more um, technological and scientific method, that really puts the, the apple there, the tempting apple. This is like the Garden of Eden. What is that apple? It is technological assistance, which the Americans can and do provide and I think mm-hmm. that that is where you see the China of today yeah. being born. And yeah. um, America be rubbing their hands with glue because um, they, they actually get what they want and there's no huge Third World War. Yeah. Um, I mean, ironically, in America, um, the, 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 this has led to the seeds of a kind of a, a deep resentment towards China. You know, we they pinched all our ideas and they've taken our technology and that, that, that kind of stuff. But what it gave America in the end, which is this is the subject of another totally different podcast, is uh, massive markets and enormous labour markets to access, which have powered globalisation in the 80s and 90s and uh, provided American companies with staggering amounts of wealth. But anyway. it's, it, it's fulfilling the British vision of the 1830s, where with zero consideration of ethics, we, we go to war to China over the issue of opium. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Now it's just about sort of microchips for smartphones, but there Spot you go. <laughs> well, let's, let's uh, end there, Larry, and thank you so much for your um, your thoughts and, uh, and input today. And it would be lovely to chat further about China and other topics with you, um, if you'd be willing to come back on the show at, cer- at a certain point in the future. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the invite. I've really enjoyed it. You highlight of my half term so far. Thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. And I, I hope your listeners found it informative. Okay, all the best, Larry. Cheers. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay.
So I hope you found that um, useful and interesting. And uh, once again, huge thanks to Larry Orton Leaf. Um, and we'll be resuming uh, normal services uh, next week. Um, and I hope you guys, if you're studying, you have a great half-term holiday um, or uh, whatever else you're doing. Take care. Um, do remember to swing by our uh, Facebook group. Um, and also, if you can uh, check out our Patreon, we uh, survive on a, a little bit of advertising revenue and the kindness of our patrons. Do take care, everybody. All the best. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.